On this week's Inside Marketing, I'm talking to Alan Jope, CEO of Unilever, and we'll talk about brand purpose, new versus old media, and whether marketing is losing its importance in business today. It's going to be a really exciting episode, so stay tuned as we talk all things marketing to one of the biggest and most respected marketing organizations in the world, only on Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. So I'm delighted to be joined by Alan Jope, who is CEO of Unilever, a busy man. So Alan, I promise I won't keep you too long. Um, so firstly, um, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to me today. So um, before we get into it, what's your what's your mood? What's the sentiment like? Are you optimistic about business in the next 18 months in the market generally? Well, uh, good morning, David. It's uh, uh, very kind of you to have me along. It's, uh, I've been looking forward to having this chat. Um, and I would say the the overall business climate is one of optimism as the world comes out of this pandemic. Um, but I would say it's tempered optimism because at the same time we're facing um, continued uh, crises of different natures, the climate mm. crisis, the social crisis. Um, I would say that people are very worried about inflation and rising commodity costs. So there's, uh, I would say, cautious optimism, but everyone's excited, I think, to uh, get back to a more normal way of working. Yeah, yeah, here, 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 here. Right, you are a busy man. I'm delighted to have you as a guest, but I am conscious of your time, so we're going we're gonna to kick off, if that's okay. Um, I'm going to start off with, with something which is quite a polarizing issue, brand purpose. So, um, you know, some people think it's great. Some people think it's marketing, you know, taking itself too seriously. And um, now I've read... You're a big fan of purpose. You've gone on the record and said that you know you Unilever will do away with brands that don't have any meaningful purpose. So clearly, you buy into it. But can you tell me a little bit about your approach to brand purpose and why do you, at Unilever? Why is it considered so important? Sure, um, Dave. Even our own shareholders are asking us the same questions. We've been in the news recently with um, uh, one of our high high profile shareholders uh, challenging. Actually, we've gone over the top on purpose. Let me begin with the following, uh, which is Unilever is not an NGO. We are not here um, uh, as a bunch of do-gooders. We're here to create value, create value for all of our stakeholders, and that includes our shareholders. We believe that the multi-stakeholder model of capitalism is correct, that when we take care of our employees properly, our team will take care of consumers, our customers, our business partners. When we do the right thing for society, when we do the right thing for the planet, then as a consequence, our shareholders will be preferentially rewarded. So there's a bunch of different uh, subjects, whether it's uh, stakeholder capitalism, sustainable business or purpose. But I just want to start with a reminder that we see purpose not as an end in itself, mm-hmm. but as a pathway to superior financial performance. Right. OK. Yeah. No, I think that's a that's a great point. And it is a polarizing thing because, I mean, I believe in brand purpose, but what I think is happening, um, so I think when, when when people at your level, CEOs talk about it, I buy into it. But I think the problem is sometimes it kind of comes from marketing departments and it doesn't it doesn't filter through the whole organization. So that's where I think a lot of brands can make mistakes. So if if you try and create or manufacture a sense of purpose from, from just marketing, um, you know, from your marketing department, because I can see why it happens. I see it happening all the time. We say, people in my job say, oh yeah, consumers really care about this thing here. So we'll care about that thing too as a brand. We'll, we'll align the brand to that. Um, and it just doesn't really work. It's it's kind of virtue signaling and it's 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 a marketing idea, thinly veiled um, marketing idea. So 
Do you think, because it has become really popular, do you think that ev- the fact that everybody's talking about purpose or everybody's kind of trying to attach to purpose, um, that that's diluting brands? Because we'll talk about Dove in a second, but do you think it's kind of diluting the value of purpose with so much noise around it? I think it begins with understanding the business case. Why and why would you put uh, sustainability at the heart of a company or purpose at the heart of a brand? And I think it's just about the battle for relevance. And uh, we know that our brands which talk about and take action on something beyond making your hair shinier or your skin softer, your mm. food tastier, uh, those brands that are addressing the big issues in society or the environment are growing much, much faster. than, And that's not yeah. that's, we can see that in Unilever's data, but we can also see it across Kantar studies that, that look across uh, 10 years of data, multiple categories. It is simply a m- m- question of relevance. But right. as, uh, as, as you and the Dentsu team would know, uh, brands must not be zigzagging. And so you can't suddenly wake up one day and say the purpose of my brand is to address such and such a societal issue. You need that, you know, you need to think in 10, 20 year horizons mm. to build up a reputation uh, and to talk with consistency about a subject matter. And it should ideally link directly to what that brand's role is in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you touched on this. So it is great that like CEOs are talking about purpose because I do think, I think when, when marketing departments are, are defining your purpose, that's a problem. I always say the, the problem with purpose marketing is usually the marketing and not the purpose because purpose is a good thing. So it's usually, the mar- it's usually when, when people like me get involved and it becomes a bad thing. So when you, when you think about purpose for your brands, how do you, how do you make sure that that purpose is genuinely meaningful? So it's something that, that, runs all the way through the business. It's not ring-fenced just to a marketing department or a campaign. How do you, how do you Unilever kind of go yeah. about purpose that way? Well, at the highest level, we don't have a business strategy and a sustainability strategy. We have one strategy for Unilever that fully integrates our commitments on sustainability and the business choices that we're making. But then when you bring it down to a brand level, I think the strong view that we have, which I'm surprised how few companies and brands have picked up, is that the walk has to precede the talk. Mm. So Dove can only talk authentically about helping young persons' self-esteem because we've helped 16 million young people address the issue. Domestics can only talk about fighting the degradation of open sanitation because we put 28 million toilets into uh, people's homes. Lifeboy can only talk about saving lives from preventable disease and washing your hands because we've taught 1 billion people how to wash their hands properly. Mm. And to pick a topical example, Hellman's can only talk about food waste and helping to fight food waste because A, it fits very naturally with the brand's functional role, which is Hellman's on on some leftovers, but we've been taking action to fight food waste. So when a brand starts talking without having taken any action, Then it is greenwashing. Then it is fake. Then it is hollow. And you know what? These days we're going to get found out. That's what we do. So for me, the absolute mandatory is um, it has to be enduring. Think in 10, 20 year horizons. And action has to precede claims. Oh, yeah. I totally agree with that. And, and, And I think. You hit the nail on the head. That's what that's where it goes wrong when brands get exposed for saying one thing and doing another. It's not just brands; people do it all the time. There's this huge say do gap. And you, you mentioned um, you mentioned Dove there, and Dove, I think Dove, like Dove, was probably and still is the most kind of the, the poster child for purpose because it was way, way, way back in its day. 
And I always loved that purpose because, as you say, as a brand, it did have a right. It had a right to have a point of view, oh, you know, in advertising how women were portrayed and to kind of take that stance on that. So it did have a, it did have a right to to have a point of view on that at what it was in its wheelhouse. Um, I had Mar- I spoke to Mark, Mark Ritson last year and he says, um, the point of purpose is, is that it should cost you something. So when I started thinking about, I love Dove's purpose, but that's a campaign. And then when I kind of had a dig around and said, just to, some of the points you're making there, there's an awful lot of things that 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 Dove does um, and a lot of programs and initiatives that, that, that Dove champion that are just far more than a campaign. Can you just talk to me about some of those things just so people can understand the depth? It's not just, a, it's not just an ad campaign that you create for Dove. Uh, well, the first thing is, remember, purpose um, is not a substitute for outstanding products. It's not mm. a substitute for great innovation. It's not a substitute for outstanding creative ideas. Um, it has to be the icing on the cake, and it cannot substitute for having a good cake. So Dove's success is actually rooted in functionally superior products, great innovation, terrific distribution, and good advertising. Mm. The fact that is all glued together by this profound commitment to um, addressing some of the unrealistic beauty ideals that are put out there. Now, um, how does that show up in authenticity? Well, first of all, there's a lot of academic research surrounds what Dove does. Um, We know the data on what uh, self-esteem issues, uh, particularly uh, young girls have. We we understand uh, quantitatively the negative impact of some of social media. We undertake um, white paper uh, analysis with uh, with academics. So there's a there's an intellectual uh, rooting in in what Dove does. Secondly, we go out and we run programs. We run programs in schools. All of our senior executives have gone and uh, faced down a class of thirteen year olds. Let me tell you, appearing on a Dentsu podcast doesn't really get the heart rate up, but standing in front of a bunch of 30, 13 year olds and talking to them about beauty, uh, uh, that sure gets you going. And we've done that with 60 uh, million uh, young women uh, and boys. But then we also do the, the research to find out, is that a wasted hour or does it affect mm. their impact and their views on self-esteem? And the answer is that it does. It has uh, a measurable Im- impact on young people's self-esteem. So you need an academically rigorous basis. You need to be able to measure what you're doing and you need to have impact in the real world yeah. alongside and I don't want to underplay it, the importance of big creative ideas, which are, you know, all of our bread and butter. butter. Yeah, it, I, th- I think you're right. And I think I think that this debate about purpose is a good, is a bad. I think it, it has, the, the, the bad actors in it are, are the people that, that are the ones that are kind of, you know, making it look bad for everyone else. So I think if it's done well, if it has, if it makes sense to your brand, uh, if it's done well, if it, and if there's meaning, as you say, if, if there's meaning behind it, if there's programs behind it, if it's if it's just a, a campaign on TV and outdoor, you're kind of tailgating on culture, and I think people see through that. But I I'm a fan of purpose properly integrated in, into brands uh, and into you know into businesses. I think that's it when it's not in your marketing but, department. Uh, but I think uh, Dave, you know, I'd go back to this point about relevance that we. Um, all of us who have spent time as marketers want to know that our messaging on our brands is relevant for some material group of the population. And purpose is nothing more than talking about the important uh, issues that are in people's lives. Um, And uh, we believe that that is how our brands will stay relevant into the future. It's by addressing issues that are important to people um, that the world has gone beyond just a a bundle of functional and emotional Mm. benefits. Yeah, and and I, I do think because 
you can do great things for a long time, for 10, 15 years, and one misstep, and you, you, you're you kind of making the headlines everywhere. When it, and it happens all the time. This kind of people, countries get things wrong. So I think we we love to catch people out and, you know, say, ha, look at this, there's a huge faux pas here. But like, you know, 20 years of, of doing purposeful marketing and brilliant initiatives and changing people's lives and, and, and one thing that goes wrong, which is going to happen, I think it gets overblown. Um, another big point, like sustainability is a huge issue at the moment um, and everybody wants to be more sustainable. But I, I think what consumers do is that they kind of outsource that responsibility in a lot of cases to brands. So they expect the companies that they're buying from, they expect them to be sustainable um, and fully sustainable, but they don't want to pay for it. So they expect uh, the brands and the companies to foot the bill for that. So um, how important is sustainability to you? Obviously, it's really, really important, but like, is it something that you're kind of make because it's expensive, I guess, a little bit like purpose to have this, to, to produce goods sustainably cost more money. But is it something, what are some of the things you're doing in this space and how important yeah. is it for you? So um, <clears throat> let me tell you how we think about it, which is there's an enormous cohort effect here. Um, uh, baby boomers don't really even claim to care about sustainability. And I'm making grand sweeping yeah. generalizations. So of course, there will be exceptions. But what we can measure is that baby boomers don't express interest. Uh, Gen X, which I just creep into by one year, uh, we're worse. We claim that we care about sustainability, but don't change our purchasing behavior at all. Right. Uh, uh, Gen Y, the millennials, becoming our core target audience now, by the way, um, are uh, very much interested in sustainability and will change their uh, purchasing behavior towards brands that have a positive social or environmental impact. But not if it involves compromising on per product performance and not if it costs a lot more. And Gen Zennials, the, the, generation, the next generation, it's almost the only thing driving right. brand preference is the values of the brand. So again, if you take a long view Building sustainability in your business is simply a matter of remaining relevant into the future. Yeah. However, it goes beyond that. And I want to challenge this assumption that it costs money to be sustainable. Think about it. Sustainable, sustainability is often about using less resources. We believe that the sustainability commitments that we've made have saved us over the last eight years a billion euros. Wow. That's a billion euros that we can deploy towards growth or into our bottom line through sustainable sourcing. And a lot of it comes from a decision we made very early on energy efficiency and shifting into green electricity. So 100% of Unilever's electricity used around the world now comes from green sources. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've saved an enormous amount of money. Final point, if keeping your brands relevant isn't enough, if saving money isn't enough, good luck trying to attract and employ the best talent in the future if you're not running your business according to the values mm. that are important to that next generation. So we think there's a really, really strong business case around sustainability. It is not sustainability or profits. Mm. It's sustainability as a pathway to superior profits. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's great. It's great to hear that um that it isn't it doesn't cost to do, it saves money. So there's no better argument for for being sustainable to most people than saving money. It's always a great it's a great one so all the rest is, is a bonus. Um when you think about advertising generally, now, it, look, it's hard. There's so many more messages and channels. Like, we, we never have any downtime because we've mostly got a phone in our hand. So it's quite complex today, the advertising landscape or the media landscape. So, you know, years and years ago, 
not that long ago, actually. It was probably enough. The, the rule was simple. Spend lots of money on TV. Highest share of voice wins. It's trickier now. Um, and it is much harder to cut through today. I, I know that. And it's increasingly difficult to try and cut through in, in terms of channels. So in, in an era of kind of traditional versus you know, digital media. Where do you stand on that? Do you are you still are Unilever a believer in TV and kind of those mass channels, or do you think no, we're 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 done with that. We're shifting all onto digital. No. Um, well, the first important point is that our big brands are in really good health. I think four or five years ago, the narrative was uh, big brands are doomed. All these insurgent brands, uh, local brands, brands with uh, uh, immediate provenance are going to nibble away and uh, gradually. Uh, uh, kill the big brands. Mm. And it's not just Unilever. You know, if you look across whatever surveys of uh, big brands, uh, big brands are getting stronger actually over the last three years. Um, but it is important that we have the agility in these big brands to compete with the uh, insurgents and the, the the consumer trends that they spot um, and the needs that they address. Um, about uh, 40% of Unilever's uh, spend is now on some form of digital uh, media. Mm -hmm. um, and we very strongly believe in um, mass advertising. We strongly believe in more targeted uh, di uh, digital. It's not one extreme or the other. It's not one at the expense of the other. But it has to be bound together by the clarity of the proposition of the brand and uh, the, the, the unifying creative ideas. Um, and maybe we can talk in a minute or two about this, this convergence of uh, digital marketing and e-commerce, because that's mm. a, an enormous trend that, we're, uh, that we're, we're seeing and has a huge impact on how we spend. But we believe in a, in a blend of uh, mass communication and more targeted communication. Right. Yeah. I'm, let, let's talk, let's pick that up then for a minute, e-commerce, because Look, we know shopping behaviors are changing. Things things are moving online, and and that 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 was always happening. It's you know shopping in person is never going to go away, um, but it's definitely and the pandemic brought people into categories that they probably didn't shop online before. So, um, but when you think about you know I suppose the promise of digital and direct to consumer for FMCG brands hasn't quite happened because. Like a lot of stuff that's happened, like Amazon have taken the place of, of the retailer. So you had relationships with Tesco. Amazon are now that retailer. And, you know, it's kind of, they're bigger and they're more, it's hard to, to, to compete with Amazon. Or, you know, we're used to worry about shelf space and facings in, in with Tesco's or Dunn's. You have now got Amazon who are a huge partner. So I, I think it's quite difficult. When I, when I think about consumer choice, you know, you want to get in and out of the supermarket quickly. So that brand familiarity, that that kind of that that kind of you know shortcut to picking a product off a busy, busy shelf, brands play a huge role there. Now, when you get into um, shopping on Amazon, um, you know it's quite a different experience, and the the brand, I guess, maybe carries less weight maybe in that digital space. So long way of getting to this question. I know Amazon have, have tried things like Dash. Um, have you guys been trialing different things in, in e-commerce or what do you, what, because yeah. it's a tricky space because it's, it's not something that's habitually in, in a, a digital purchase, you know, some of your products. So what have you been doing and what's your view on that? Dave, let me take a minute or two and just explore a couple of themes that you uh, brought up there. First of all, we are seeing the convergence of e-commerce and digital marketing. Um, the trendy ones in our business are calling it now de-commerce. And uh, we're now seeing, as I said, um, over 40% of our marketing spend is on digital uh, uh, platforms. 
Um, and and e-commerce as a part of our business is growing very, very quickly. In the last five years, it's gone from 2% of Unilever to 13% of Unilever. We have 40 digital marketing hubs around uh, Mm. the world. Um, We have 37 what we call people data centers, which is uh, we're moving away from doing ad hoc market research and we're constantly gathering uh, data. In fact, our people data centers generate one petabyte of data every 90 days. We've got 1.7 billion digital IDs. We've got 186 million emails. We've got 78 super segments that we've built for targeting. And you Mm -hmm. might be surprised, our our cloud is hosted on Azure, which is Microsoft's platform. And we're their third biggest data estate. So we have this enormous um, data estate that is converging with e-commerce. Now, you asked me, you know, a lot of your question there was about Amazon. Well, Amazon is only one type of e-commerce. Yeah. So we think of e-commerce as four different types. There's the pure play, so Amazon, although actually Alibaba and JD.com are bigger um, platforms uh, for us. So China, if you want to see what's really happening in e-commerce, don't mm. look at Amazon, look at China. Mm. So the pure play platforms are one type of e-commerce. Then you've got the omni-channel, bricksandmortar.com, so tesco.com, walmart.com, carrefour.com. Very important for us. Mm -hmm. Then the third is direct-to-consumer, relatively small. Um, We can can, uh, economically sell our luxury beauty business where people are buying $100, $200 worth of stuff uh, at high margins. We can do that direct-to-consumer, but we're not going to be selling bars of Dove soap or or uh, uh, jars of mayonnaise direct consumer. And then the fourth type is business to business. Increasingly, we're serving the very small retail stores that we serve in many parts of the world using um, e-commerce platforms for B2B. So when you add together the Amazon Pure Plays, the Omnichannel, mm-hmm. the, the uh, direct consumer and the B2B, it's an extremely fast growing, grew 43% for us last year at wow. uh, e-commerce. It is important. It's going to become even more important, and but it manifests very differently in different parts of the world. So Amazon's one model, but it's by far not the only model. Yeah, good point. Good point. Um, I'm thinking about because <clears throat> kind of moving on from that about about you know digital investment, digital. So when when you think about marketing as a function, so like the world, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but the world is just has gone short-term focus. Like I, I know our attention spans have gone from 12 seconds to eight seconds in less than 20 years. So we're, we're just gone much Sorry, more short. What was that? <laughs> you nearly got me. You nearly got me. <laughs> um, so it, uh, we are gone. Like we're, we're bottom funnel focus and I see this all the time. Um, now, the thing I think is a bit strange is that um, there's there's never there has never been more evidence in marketing theory to, and and you know categories change and there's slight nuances in it but as a rule of thumb 60 40 60 percent of your investment should go on longer term brand building things and 40 on short term tactical things now it changes but that's as a starting point is not bad um, and if you're if if you're interested you can dig around and find your category because there is just a huge amount of of um, of information and and material published on that and yet. A load of people. Sometimes what I hear is, "Yeah, yeah, no, I know, I buy all that, but my category is different, my brand's different, my, whatever." It just, that doesn't apply to me. So the universal rules that have applied to everybody don't apply to a lot of clients I talk to, which just doesn't make sense. So, what's your position on on that whole thing about long and short of it, sixty forty? Do, do you buy into it, or is it kind of you know, or do you just well, let the brands? We agree, 
we agree with a very great deal of what the uh, Ehrenberg Bass Institute um, promotes. Uh, my friend Byron Sharp um, advocates for. By the way, one thing we don't agree with them on is they, they're very dismissive of sustainability and purpose, but their right. mathematical modeling of consumer products is very robust. And so I do think um, the idea that uh, you invest about half uh, your money on programs that really build brand equity and uh, that the other half goes on uh, things that convert to purchase. What I absolutely reject um, is this idea of the, the funnel, upper funnel, lower funnel. It is a figment of the imagination that's been created by marketers. It's convenient to help us organize our mm -hmm. activity systems. Um, but think about your own uh, your own shopping behavior. You know, the idea that you logically march through this uh, funnel oh, yeah. of uh, you know, awareness down to finally uh, uh, purchase and post-purchase is nonsense. Um, we all have different uh, sh uh, shopper journeys. We follow different journeys for the same purchase at different times. Mm. And I think it's a, it's very liberating, actually, to walk away from the the straitjacket of upper funnel, lower funnel thinking. But I think that there's a sufficient empirical evidence to say, don't let the pendulum swing all the way towards only mm. short-term, um, commercially-driven purchase, uh, uh, close-to-purchase um, activity. Do make sure that we retain enough money um, in the in the the so-called higher funnel, upper funnel activity. But let me tell you why that is. Um, it's because the difference um, between um, a product and a brand is the mental structures, the memory structures that mm. that you create, and um, those memory structures take years and years and years to develop. The reason why we know that Volvo is associated with safety is because they didn't talk about anything else for yeah. 40 years. And yeah. most of us have this uh, bizarre notion of annual marketing plans, and this is the message we're going to land this year. Mm. It's years and years and years of consistency to build strong brands. And that's the, my, in my view, that's the, the key role of yeah. um, some of the, the broader um, brand communication work that we absolutely continue to hold dear and at the heart of our best brands. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. You mentioned Byron Sharp there, and I, and I think he's done he has done a great service to marketing because I think you know I, I you know I've I've grown up in in this kind of like I think marketing got a little bit silly because it, like we became proud of of not reaching people, so we had these tiny tiny segments of people, these audiences like. And you know, in like there are your heavy consumers or your top, and they're the people where there's no headroom left. So, and media became obsessed with finding those and only those people. And you know, the rule of um, when I started media was about letting as many people know about your product or service as possible. And it became it became quite the opposite. It was about the ability to not let people see it, except these tiny group of people. So then, Byron Sharp comes in and says, "That's all ridiculous." Um, and I I think. He's, it's gone too far. So what what we tend to and we humans do this all the time. You tend to overcorrect on on the problem. So so I think they've overcorrected by saying you don't need any targeting. Um, and then the debate, which always happens, is polarized and it's binary. It's A or B. And I said, well, you can have both. You can you can do mass things and you can also create target audience. You don't have to you don't have to buy into one at the exclusion of the other. So. You do buy into Byron Sharp's thinking mostly, yeah? I do. I think, you know, David, we always have to. I'm quite sure that 
Um, Dentsu has some clients for whom extreme targeting is really important. If you're selling um, luxury vehicles or you're selling um, trips on private mm. aircraft or yeah. very, very expensive holidays, there's no point in scattergunning that uh, out there. If you're selling a, a drug that is only relevant to 1% of the population, mm. again, you don't want to be scattergunning that. But for the bulk of mass consumer products, which certainly is what the, the Unilever portfolio comprises, um, building awareness really matters. And I think one of the reasons why people struggle with the Ehrenberg Bass um, work is it is slightly counterintuitive that yeah. the long tail of light buyers yeah. is more important than the very small group of yeah. heavy loyal buyers. It's counterintuitive and it goes a little bit against what we were all taught for many years about how important uh, loyalty is. Yeah. Truth of the matter is um, reach and frequency still matter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it it, it is counterintuitive. But then when you but, but then when you when you think about it logically in the Coca-Cola example where you know somebody's buying 20 cans of Coca-Cola a week and there's only a tiny group of those people. Not, they can't buy anymore, you know, but all you have to do is somebody's buying one a year. If you, if you get them to buy two a year, you know, and there's millions of those people. So um, I get, I do get a sense, just talk about broadly a bit more. I, I get a sense that marketing is no longer the kind of, it doesn't have, certainly doesn't have the same swagger or impact in culture. And it's just not seen as um, as important as an industry it was. I, I think it's losing a bit of its influence in boardrooms. Uh, so, you know, and there's companies that are marketing-led companies, and marketing is a big part. And I think Unilever, you you guys are one of those companies. So, is marketing a function that has a seat at your top table within Unilever? Uh, short answer is yes, definitely. At the end of the day, Unilever's proprietary capability and most precious assets are our brands and our people. And we try to look after our people and our brands really, really well. Um, the top table of Unilever, we call it the Unilever Executive, um, uh, has uh, a, just over 10 people around the table. And uh, one of the loudest voices is Connie Brahms. Connie is, and this is an interesting title, she's our Chief Digital and Marketing Officer. Okay. In fact, yesterday, the World Federation of Advertising named her as Global Marketer of the Year. So congratulations, oh. Connie. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, no doubt Connie will be listening to this podcast. I have no doubt she will. The podcast will be listening she to. She certainly will. I'll, put, I'll point her <laughs> in that direction. And right. uh, But I'm, I'm thrilled for her. It's very well deserved. Um, but I tell you, um, she has a very loud voice. And um, we... Uh, we're we're nowhere uh, without our brands, and mm. so yes, marketing is a voice at the top table, and there's a, a huge area of focus in the company. Yeah, and it, and I don't know who I was speaking to about this. I think it was on the podcast two years ago, Rory Sutherland, and we and we talked about this issue, and he he made a point about um, how the construct of business has kind of changed a little bit today. So, you know, there's a couple of things behind that. I read last, I think it was last year, about the average tenure of a of a, a CEO is about seven years, but a CMO is only about three years. So it's less than half that. So, and when you look at agency relationships, you guys have had strong and and um, long standing agency relationships. But but the norm is like clients move around, they jump around. There is no sense of long term agency um, relationships with, with between clients and, and this perpetual pitch cycle that goes on. So, um, again. Things go short term. When you told you said it a few minutes ago about Volvo brands are built over time, reputations are built over time. When you swap agency partners and and you know move people around too much, I think that changes. But one of the problems, and I see it in large organisations like like Unilever, where 
you have to move people around to keep them fresh. So you might have somebody who's a brand manager on, on you know, on Dove, and then you, you move them onto another brand. And quite often you move them for their development into another territory. Now, when you think about the short term, I think business cultures, we reward people on the short term. So bonuses are paid annually. Um, so I always make this point. If I was a brand manager in, I don't know, let's just say Coca-Cola, it's not in my interest, I think, three years because I'm probably not going to be the brand manager for Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola in Ireland in three years' time. I'm better off to, you know, if I lay the seeds and do the rigorous, the proper things in marketing now, it, there's every chance that that is going to pay back my successor. Now, if everyone does the right thing, it's fine. But when we reward people in the short term and we move people around, we, we kind of, we disincentivize people for, for taking a long-term view. So, um, you know, even agency bonuses and things, things are paid annually. So agencies are incentivized to, to do significant improvement or were measured in, in one year cycles. So are we digging this hole for ourselves? Do you not think that, we, it's, it, that the ability, we are not rewarded to think long-term? That was a long question. Sorry. So We um, uh, strongly believe in domain expertise and tenure. And uh, the trend in Unilever is for people to stay in brands and on businesses for uh, longer and longer. And uh, you should just know that every manager in Unilever, we've got about 50, we've got 150,000 people in the company, 15,000 managers. Every manager in Unilever has a long-term incentive that pays out over um, three years. Mm-hmm. It is worth more than the annual bonus. Right. And it comprises uh, four elements, one of which is progress on our sustainability agenda, interestingly enough. Um, And so we're all thoroughly incentivized on the long-term performance of the company. But I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about it. The the challenge of making sure that particularly uh, people earlier in their careers are building up different types of experiences Mm -hmm. and uh, and learning the, the sales side of the business and the finance side of the business to be better marketers Balancing that with the need for tenure is very important. I think um, just out of interest, the the guy who uh, runs our Dove business um, at the moment has been working on Dove for about nine years, right? Okay. And his predecessor and his predecessor the same. Um, so our best brands are run by people who have got deep, 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 deep knowledge yeah. and consistency of action. Yeah, and also that, and you talked about consistency of action, but also consistency of of comms and purposing. I work on too many brands where new marketing manager comes in, new CMO, they change what they're about, change campaigns, change everything, and it just like they change too often. Then that doesn't if work. Can, if I can be challenging, Dave, I think it's a special role that agencies can play. I think um, uh, when you've got a revolving door, we try not to have a revolving door, mm. but when it certainly happens. I think that um, uh, agencies as custodians of brands and especially the strategy side of agencies mm-hmm. need to have some backbone to say, you know, we're not going to let you vandalize uh, this brand yeah. and, and escalate if necessary. And, uh, you know, I know those can be hard co- conversations, but here's an interesting one. Unilever's relationship, uh, we, you're right, we have deep relationships with um, a few agencies. Mm-hmm. Our relationship with, for example, JWT, Sorry to pick a competitor That's brand. Fine. It's all, we're all friends. Is, is is older than Unilever. Right. So how can that be? Yeah. Well, the answer is our pre- precedent company, uh, Lever Brothers, which pre-existed uh, right. Unilever, 
um, had a relationship with JWT that started more than 100 years ago. Okay. And uh, they're still doing fantastic work on brands like Lux that shows tremendous long-term continuity. So uh, continuity matters. And please uh, do your clients a service by showing backbone when you see uh, zigzag marketing and um, short-termism. Yeah, and I think there's some clients who value you pushing back on them and then there's, there's some clients that probably don't um so you know which ones you can you can you can talk to but yeah just i'm amazed at how, how often things change um now this podcast i'm you know it's usually um you know media agency people or media owners i am trying to get more clients that's why i want to i said i'd start with a nice easy client you know somebody who's not that important to get you on you know in case i make a mistake and then i'll get more important clients on next so this is a good this is a good learn for me um so because it's quite agency focused, you know, we see things through our lens. Everybody does. And that's kind of, that's just our, our human condition. Um, now, thinking about your side in terms of, you have you have a lot of agency partners, which is complex in and of itself. But when you think about your agency partners generally, not about anyone in particular um, and, and nobody's names, what, like, what, what is your pain point with with agencies in in their kind of the collective noun in, in general for them? Is there anything yeah. you you wish that they could your partners could do and make your life better? Anything? Well, um, I want to start by saying how much we value and love our agency partners. They are, in many ways, the truest long term business partners that we have, and uh, they're an essential and really, really valued uh, part of our business. Secondly, um, of course, there's this enormous fragmentation that's happened in the agency landscape. You know, when I started, uh, agencies were a one-stop shop, and then you got this enormous fragmentation that happened. And three or four years ago, we made the decision that we didn't really want to manage all that complexity. Uh, but that, and we would shift our relationship to the holding companies. Mm-hmm. So we now uh, try to give our biggest assignments not to Ogilvy, but to WPP right. or, uh, or or Interpublic or Omnicom mm-hmm. uh, or Dentsu. Um, and we want the agency group to take responsibility for assembling the talent. And it ultimately comes down to people around yeah. our problems. And that's a very important step that we've taken there where we want the very best people in the holding group to work on our challenges and our problems and let the holding group navigate that. We don't right. have to navigate that. Third thing is... Uh, this point we've made about the convergence of technology and, uh, and and marketing, it is inconceivable to me now that we would want to work with an agency partner that did not have tremendous capability on processing data, turning mm-hmm. it into insights, linking it to commerce, building the feedback loops. Um, and the fourth and final point is, at the end of the day, what matters more than anything are big creative ideas. Mm. Yeah, no, for sure, and I and I guess you, you you look for the same things in your agency partners. Like you expect them to have to be sustainable, and and that's increasingly important, and all that. So, um, I'm not going to keep you much longer. I'm just going to give you one last question. So, there's a huge amount of talk about in housing generally, um, and you know it's probably uh, maybe more so for clients that are um transactional digitally, and their and their and their kind of that relationship is is digitally driven, um, but it is a trend across the board, generally speaking. So. And the media model, as you would have known, I think back in the day, the way media agencies were built, they were built on a scale model. So we we take collectively clients' money, we pull that together, and we then drive price better pricing from from um, the media owners. And that was, it was it was a scale game. Now, increasingly, as digital 
and, and media buying becomes less about scale, um, it actually changes the rules completely. And as things are automated, it changes that completely. So I, I think that the agency relationship is going to shift to be one of much more of a consultative one. So, um, you know, more strategic, less about the implementation of campaigns at an execution level. But Unilever generally, are you in-housing anything in terms of digital or tech or anything like that, um, you know, or programmatic buying? Are you in-housing anything or have you plans to in-house anything or what's your view on it? We believe still in that scale matters in the media game. And it's one area where we uh, don't allow fragmentation and we insist that uh, we aggregate Unilever's scale um, on the uh, planning and execution of our media, mm-hmm. because uh, as much as uh, some brands here and there might argue they could do a better job on their own, um, over time, fragmenting our our significant clout would yeah. be commercially disadvantageous. So we believe in uh, media buying scale. We have built in in house, I think, three signature capabilities. Two I've mentioned. One is our Uh, The core marketing job now in Unilever is done in our uh, data centers. And so it is fundamentally marketing is becoming a digital skill. Mm. Uh, We've built these people data centers that are a listening device that have replaced traditional market research or complement traditional market research. Um, And the third area that I haven't talked about is an um, in-house creative capability. Mm. So we built something called U-Studios. And um, it is a, ser- a network of 30 to 40 uh, physical studios in our uh, key operations around the world. Um, and, uh, you know, you say you can't have high quality, low cost and fast. Mm. I think we've proven with this model that we can yeah. get uh, award winning work from you studio. Right. Uh, um, that it's, uh, it's done at uh, significantly lower cost. And it's very, very fast. Mm. And in that regard, it is a threat to some of our traditional uh, agencies. Um, where the only, um, I think, the only appropriate response from our uh, partner agencies is uh, to continue to deliver the type of breakthrough, durable, creative yeah. ideas that yeah. we're not going to likely get out of our uh, in-house uh, uh, studios. So mm. in-housing matters from us from a technology, from a consumer insights, and actually from a, a creative material development process. Well, it sounds, sounds like you're busy in lots of innovative things. So yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't expecting... Um, I mean, there's lots of things being being in-house. I wasn't expecting creative, um, I, but I guess you probably need the, the, the amount of material and, and things you need... Yeah, big campaigns go out in the world, they last a long time, but there's a huge requirement on on fast turnaround things just for social and you know, digital. Jane, when you when you and I uh started our careers, you made you know, you spent your year making a couple of TV commercials, yeah. um, a few radio ads, maybe a couple of print ads. Uh the average campaign that we put out now has over a thousand assets. Yeah. And what you studio help us to do is take the big ideas and convert it into those thousand assets. Uh, quick at high yeah. quality, manageable cost. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Okay, Alan, that's what, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I've been planning this for a long time, and uh, yeah, it was brilliant to talk to you. Um, you're a gentleman for making time to come on the podcast, and I really enjoyed it. But I promised I wouldn't keep you too long, and I'm going to be true to my word. I'm going to let you go now and get on with your busy day. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Dave. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me, and. Uh, uh, may I just uh, encourage everyone in the Dentsu group to uh, make sure that Dentsu is tackling the big issues in the world, climate change, uh, inequality, 
and the degradation of nature. You'll be doing your own business and your clients a service by doing so. Uh, good luck, Godspeed. Speak right. to you again soon. Thanks. Thanks, thanks Alan. Talk soon. See you. Bye-bye. So thanks to Alan for joining me today. I know how busy you are. And as always, thank you to Kira in Marketing and Andrea on Sound. And thank you to our partners, Irish Times Media Solutions, who make all this possible. If you like this episode, listen back to some of our other great episodes. You'll find them by typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice, or you'll find them wherever you get your podcast from. So until next time, thanks for listening. The Inside Marketing Podcast. Brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.